Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Jennifer Barrett and I am an academic in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and I've been seconded to work on the university's culture strategy with the Vice-Chancellor's Office. And tonight we're going to hear about an initiative. Um, This is one of the initiatives of of that program. But first of all, I'd like to open our discussion about the current backlash against progressive cultural change. And I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. So acknowledging country is an important way to maintain a tradition gifted from Australia's First Peoples and to remind ourselves of the contested ownership of this land, a land that was never ceded. Underneath our fear that others might not be taking this acknowledgement seriously is a fear that we may not be sufficiently informed to understand its real significance, that is the real significance of acknowledgement of country and its meaning or purpose. The fear that if we did understand, we might discover that we are complicit in maintaining an oppressive system. Today I invite you to join me in reflecting on the way we acknowledge country at events like this. As we listen to today's speakers, let us allow ourselves to consider our complicity in forms of cultural backlash and to remember that if we can first accept our own fears and failings, then it will be easier for us to accept the fears and failings of others. Let us remember that any discomfort in acknowledging country is partly because we have not yet built a cohesive society that truly acknowledges this country's traditional owners and let us allow that discomfort to motivate us to do better now and in the future. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of this country. So in the spirit of doing better, let me introduce our event tonight and our speakers who can further illuminate for us the way that uh, the cultural backlash works or doesn't. Cultural Conversations is a new uh, culture strategy program of public engagement comprising symposia conducted under the uh, Sydney Ideas umbrella. It's a planned on-campus campaign promoting our values and a proposed podcast series of one-on-one interviews involving university academic staff. There is no better demonstration of our collective value of openness and engagement than a public symposium. In fact, just before you all arrived, we were talking about the value of of Sydney Ideas as a way of of us talking about our research, but also its impact on on the wider world, and hopefully we'll extend that tonight. So Sydney Ideas events have long provided fora where the Academy engages with intellectual debate, posits and responds to some of the most challenging questions facing contemporary global humankind, and invites the participation of distinguished community members um, into this fora. Our university culture is open to complex critical discussion that works towards problem solving across our organisational boundaries and with the wider community. 
mutual, of matters of mutual accountability, reciprocity in the notion of our collective res, uh, responsibility, cultivating creative and empathetic leadership qualities across the institution, and the sharing and valuing of diverse experience and, and knowledge are equally intrinsic to a whole of university approach to strengthening our organisational culture. Tonight's event, Cultural Backlash, is the first in the Sydney Ideas Cultural Conversation series. Theories suggest that the rise in authoritarian populism reflects a negative reaction to progressive cultural change. What does this mean for multicultural societies that value diversity, e equity and social justice? The panel, or sort of the, the, our speakers tonight, are two fabulous people. I feel very lucky that we've been able to get both of them in, in the same room. Professor Pippa Norris is an ARC Laureate Fellow and Professor of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. She's also the Maguire Lecturer in Comparative Politics at John F. Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University. And Dr. Sim Sudpomasan, Race, Race Discrimination Commissioner, Australian Human Rights Commission, will these people, both of them, will reflect on the rise of the cultural backlash in public life and the challenges that ensue. So the format for tonight will be both uh, our, our speakers will, will present for 10 to 15 minutes and then we will have a conversation between the three of us over here before we open it to the floor around 7 o'clock. So in, uh, in introducing more fully, our first speaker for tonight is, is uh, Pippa Norris. If Pippa, you'd like to join me up here and we'll get Pippa sorted here with the technology and I'll just give you a, a more detailed a more detailed background to Pippa's work and I'm sure many of you have already checked online uh, to see what Pippa's work is about. So Pippa Norris is a comparative political scientist. She's currently the Professor of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and as I said an ARC Re uh, Research Council Laureate Fellow. And uh, she's the founding director of the Electoral Integrity Project, which is based at the University of Sydney and Harvard, and produces innovative and policy-relevant research comparing elections worldwide. As a political scientist and a public speaker, her research focuses on election and public opinion, political communications and gender politics. She's published around 50 books and her work has been translated into more than a dozen languages. And I think there's a book on this topic coming out later this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would like you to all join me in welcoming Pippa to the stage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. So it's a pleasure to be with you all and to really think about some of the key issues and some of the challenges in our time. And what I'm going to do is talk about the broader context and try to work out what's going on around the world, particularly in Europe, but also in the United States. And hopefully Tim can come in in particular to talk about how this relates to Australia and to the issues in Australia. So first I'm going to try and clarify, populism is a word that everybody is using. It's all over the place in every single media headline and so on. What does it mean? And is it right to call all of these different leaders? Think of them. We have people such as Donald Trump. We have people such as Theresa May or UKIP, Nigel Farage. We have those such as the leaders of the AFD in Germany. We have leaders in Hungary, Viktor Orban. Are they all s part of the same group? So I'll try and define what we mean by populism. And what I'm going to argue in particular is that it's a particular type of populism which is the real challenge, which we term authoritarian populism. Populism is a kind of a soft way criticizing different groups and the establishment. 
the threat doesn't come from populism, but authoritarian populism. And I'll explain a little bit what that is. And what we're arguing in our new research is that there is a cultural backlash. And it does occur, as Jennifer said, because progressive social liberalism has been expanding, as particularly amongst the younger generation, for decades now. We can go back to the 60s and back to the 70s, when new values started to emerge amongst the well-educated, amongst the graduates, amongst those who were the better off. Those have now reached what we term a tipping point, and in particular, the majorities of the countries in many, many Western countries, the older generation, the less educated, those who feel that they do not subscribe to these ideas, have become angry over the, over the years. They've found new champions who will defend them, and so this cultural tipping point is a backlash which has had ma major repercussions in dividing parties, dividing peoples, dividing countries, dividing societies. I'll give you a little bit of evidence, which is from Europe particularly, where we've got lots of different parties, some of whom fall into this category to show you how the new uh, issues are coming through. And I'll explain a little bit of the United States if I have time, but I probably won't, so Jennifer's going to cut me short if I bang on for too long. Now, you have permission. Um, this is the book, uh, so I always start with a little ad. Um, it's in bed with Cambridge University Press. And so what we do is first we set out the theory, and that's a little bit what I'll say today. And then we go through some of the evidence, and we look at the value changes. Uh, and again, I'm working with Ron Inglehart, my colleague at the University of Michigan, who's worked on this for many, many years. And we try to then think about what's changing in society, and then how are parties, politicians, and leaders responding? How do values get translated into votes? And then why does it matter for democracy? So it's a big book, and we'll just take little bits of it from today's talk and think through where we're going with all of these. So first, what's the concepts and theories? Let's just talk about what's happening. We often think of it in terms of Trump. <laughs> and we sometimes wake up at four in the morning, as I do, th and worry about what's whatever has been happening. We might think of it in terms of Brexit, and that, again, is very familiar, and the tremendous hash, which is currently the British politics, if you look at what's happening with there. But it's much bigger than that. So here are some of the parties we're all very familiar with. The French National Front, Marine Le Pen, came second, of course, in the presidential election, may well do well in the next election. But also in other countries, some of the longest democracies in the world, Switzerland, the People's Party. Also, of course, in Austria, the Freedom Party, rose up in the 70s, has now come through and is part of the government. We can think about the Swedish Democrats. We often, again, forget about Norway and Sweden and Denmark, all of which have strong parties which are along these lines. Also Greece, some of the worst countries in terms of the economic recession, Golden Dawn, very strongly in this culture. And of course, most recently in Italy, where we see a populist um, coalition in government between the Lega Nord and also the Five Star Movement and, and the Netherlands. So it's not simply in those countries which have had a big economic crisis, like the Mediterranean. It's also in the affluent countries in the north. It's not simply those countries like Hungary or Poland, which have gone through a transition democracy, some of the longest standing Western democracies in the world. And these are countries which 20, 30 years ago, these parties would have been very much a minority. They were there. They've always been there since the 70s and 80s. Think about the National Front, for example, in Britain, the BNP in Britain. But what's happened is they've risen up in shares of votes, in shares of seats. They've entered ministerial office and they're now in government in a number of countries around the world. And they've been really displacing both the major parties on the centre-left and the centre-right. But it's the centre-left which has had the greatest difficulties in dealing with these in many regards. 
And again, this just shows you what's been changing by showing you the share of the vote of some of the most successful of the parties which we classify as authoritarian populist in these periods in the most recent uh, 15 years. Swiss People's Party, a quarter of the vote. Uh, the Progress Party, 20% of the vote. And you can see if we go down, and then of course a number of different minor parties. And particularly it should be added in Central and Eastern Europe where some of these parties have been very, very strong in Hungary, in Croatia, in Poland, in Slovenia, in the countries which emerged after the fall of the Berlin Wall, started to become much more liberal democratic in their rights and values, and now are moving rapidly backsliding in terms of authoritarian policies, in terms of intolerance, and in terms of the rise of many of these parties. And as you can see, some of them have been taking up a quarter of the vote, even 40% of the vote. So what's happened in general is that these parties were always here. This shows you the average share of the vote, if you take it throughout the period from the end of the Second World War, across 32 different societies, I calculate, they were there as very much the fringe, 5%, no more. What changed, and this is an important change, happened in the 1980s. So again, it's nothing to do with Trump. It's nothing to do with the most recent period. It's a long-term shift. And they moved up, they gained votes, they gained seats, and they gained power increasingly in many, many countries. They're still a minority, but they can be the kingmakers, holding the balance of power, especially when the other parties are small. And they have been gaining in a number of different countries. And again, if I just show you the map, you can see it's just not part of one part of Europe or another part of Europe. Across Europe, the share of the votes on average in the last 17 years has been quite substantial. Now, let's just say, what are we talking about as a phenomenon? Let's get the concepts right. So what is populism? I think there are two key features. Most of these parties, most of these leaders and social movements have two key things which they claim. And the first is that basically they are anti-establishment. Now establishment is a broad term, but it basically means those who are in power, those who are part of the established groups, whether it's elected representatives, whether it's judges in the courts, whether it's those who are experts, I'm afraid all intellectuals or academics or, or scientists are also seen as part of the establishment. Who needs experts, to quote uh, Michael Gove? Who needs multinational bodies? Who needs NAFTA? Who needs NATO? Who needs the G7? Who needs any of these bodies to, to tell us what to do? And who needs experts in terms of either the news media, when we're all part of the media nowadays, or any other groups? So part of it is basically a kind of pitchfork rebellion saying these guys are not simply wrong in terms of their judgments or how they've been having exa ex exercising power. They're morally corrupt. Their values are ones which are not appropriate. And then the second thing is, if you don't trust the establishment, who do you trust? So the populists say, trust the majority. Trust the people. Trust ordinary people who come to Trump's rallies, who are part of the 52% who voted for Brexit, who have direct participation. And so, of course, if there are rallies, think about, again, the way that Trump is energized by his base. Think about the way in which he emphasizes his share of popular support in his base. But also, if there are direct forms of referendum, and again, the Brexit decision, if you are for the leave, then you can be energized by that. If you're for the remain, you might be 52% to 48%, but the majority, quote-unquote, is the decision that has to be binding on Parliament and on Britain. Now, of course, the trouble is that we don't have that many forms of direct decision-making in any society. We might have referendums now and then, but on the daily basis, no. So what does this allow? 
If you don't trust Congress, if you don't trust Parliament, if you don't trust your polis, if you don't trust the established leaders, the mainstream parties, who do you trust? So the da danger is that what it allows is authoritarian leaders to rise up and authoritarian parties to come in. And so you can see populism as a form of rhetoric, a way of speaking, a way of framing who should be in government, but it doesn't tell you anything about public policies. What matters are the values of the leaders and the parties and the forces behind that. And authoritarianism is an old concept. We can go right back to the end of the Second World War when it was thought about authoritarian personalities. But what we're defining it as is three things. What is an authoritarian? Well, firstly, somebody who really emphasizes security. The idea is that there are threats. Now, the threats can be diverse. The threats can come from minorities, or they can come from over there, the other countries, or they can come from within ourselves, the terrorists. But the idea is that we are in a time of peril, of instability, whether we're threatened by crime or poverty, or whether we're being threatened by outsiders. Secondly, authoritarians believe in conventionalism, that those outsiders are threatening not just our jobs or our economic security, they're threatening ourselves, our culture. They're threatening in America things like belief in God. They're threatening things on belief of patriotism, beliefs of country. And the idea is that, therefore, many different outsider groups can be framed in this way. So it could be racial minorities, the way that, for example, Trump deals with African-Americans in terms of football and all of those signals he, si he gives. Or it can be his anti-Hispanics, think about his policies on immigration. Or it can be other groups. So, of course, there are policies where he's anti-gay and gay rights. He's also anti-gender equality and women. We all know the examples of misogyny, which have been replete, but also substantive things. And anti-Semitism is part of it. Islamophobia is part of it. So it can be framed in a very flexible way. It's a threat from them against us. And the idea is that what we need, if you believe in authoritarianism, is a strong leader who's going to protect you against the other, who's going to make sure that you're safe and that your values are safe and your culture is safe. And in many ways in America, therefore, what Trump stands for is a very retrograde view, which is that American culture has been changing dramatically over the years. The culture that is around us is very different to the culture that was there in the 1950s or the 1940s, and that therefore he's going to return us to America first, which is this sense of traditional values, which is shared by many of his core supporters. So authoritarianism, you might have thought, well, who would believe that nowadays? The danger is that what you do is you combine the two. So populism says, let's discredit the old institutions. You can't trust Congress. You can't trust your politicians. Who can you trust? The leader who's going to protect your group, the leader who's going to protect your culture, the leader who's going to protect your, your values. Now, not every populist is authoritarian by any means. You get progressive groups. You get groups like Podemos in Spain, who are fairly liberal in their social values. But most of the groups I showed you earlier, most of the parties, are authoritarian as well. And so you take away the rug of the old forms of institutional uh, uh, forms of democracy, and you sub substitute instead the strong leader who will protect you against these other social groups. So it's a very powerful appeal. It's a very powerful gut feeling that people feel under threat, that America is no longer the America which they grew up in, is no longer the America of their values, and they're being betrayed by the Hollywood elite, by the intellectuals at Harvard, amongst others, and by the news media, who are obviously fake and not real. So who do you trust? You trust Donald Trump. And you look at the polls, and it is just staggering when you think about 
the ways of his rhetoric and the ways in which he treats truth. And then you look at those who are his supporters, his base, and when people are asked, is Donald Trump honest? Is Donald Trump truthful? And they say, yes. Why? Because he appeals to their values. It's not about the facts, it's not about the ideas, it's about the values which he will articulate and he'll defend them against those who are criticizing him. And of course, anybody who criticizes him is just fake news, it's not to be believed, and therefore he can stand for you. Now, what explains this? Just briefly, let's say that there are three things which matters when we're trying to explain why it is that in some countries these forces have come to the fore and in other ones they haven't. Not every country has this group. And of course, if we think about Australia, as Tim will talk about, there are certain barriers, just as there are in some other countries. So the first is the electoral system. What's the threshold? Can you get small parties coming to power, like in Switzerland, with high levels of proportionality, or do you have large hurdles to get into power? In addition, you need to have demand. In other words, the public has to feel this sense of resentment that the culture has changed and it no longer reflects them, that the elites are no longer responding to them. And then you also need to have supply. So the parties and the politicians need to take up these issues, need to champion them, need to feel that there is things that they can respond to along these lines. And so you can argue, for example, in Europe, that for many, many years there has been great criticism of the European Union on the fact that it's technocratic, not very democratic, that it deals in certain policies which many people in particular countries feel are not appropriate. But there's been a consensus amongst the parties that nearly all of them have been pro-European, pro-EU. When the populist authoritarians come along, they break that consensus. They say, no, we need to put Britain first, or we need to put France first, or Germany first. And by doing that, the other parties can then either respond by taking on those parties, taking on those policies. For example, Theresa May, when she says Brexit means Brexit, she says, okay, we'll go with that. Or they can reject that and try and protect the elite consensus, the liberal consensus. So you need all three in conjunctions. Now, I know that we're still, we don't have a lot of time for this, but we have a little bit more little bit more. Um, I won't go into all of the theory that we've got, which is a long theory, it's a big theory, you can read it all in the book. Um, but this basically, I know, it's lots of, lots of little arrows and things like that. Just to summarize, what it says is that what's driving all of these things is not just particular personalities, and it's not just particular events. So you can obviously, one of the key explanations, what drives what's going on right now in Europe? And obviously it could be the economic recession, or it could be patterns of immigration. We think what's driving it is really long-term change, which is generational and educational. The transformations in our values which have been happening for decades. And this goes right back to Ron Englehart's earliest work, which he wrote in 1977 on the silent revolution, when he said that new values are emerging, values which are very socially tolerant, both of minorities and of sexual diversity, which are pro-environmentalism, which are pro-cosmopolitanism, being part of an international community, not being part of your nation, which are very secular versus religious. Those values he called the silent revolution. Everybody has probably read about them in any sociology or cultural stuff. The new aspect is the backlash against those ideas. And why does it come about? And I'll just summarize our core argument. The core argument is simply that when that group which used to be termed post-materialists or can be termed social liberals, 
when it was a younger generation, when it was a smaller proportion, when they were 10%, 15%, they challenged the consensus, but they didn't in any way represent a major threat. Once that group, which is generational, through demographic change became the 40%, became the 50% or the 55%, then the older generation, the generation that grew up in the interwar years, the, the generation that grew up in the baby boom years, they felt their values under threat, their core identities under threat. In America, the idea that you should believe in God, you should believe in country, you should believe in guns, you should believe in a variety of traditional things that were seen as solidly American, were all under threat by the changing of society, but also the changing of values. And just of one simple example, think about the way that gay marriage has been transformed in our lifetime. So 20 years ago, people never even sought, sought to achieve equal rights in marriage. And the ways in which that has now become mainstream, the ways in which acceptance of gay rights and homosexuality and lesbian rights and other rights has all been transformed into culture. And that threatens many groups who believe in marriage and the family and very traditional values. And what's changed is that a politician like Trump is partly the result of these changes and then he also exacerbates them by appealing to those particular values. So these changes are long-term, they're not short-term, the changes in education are major, but all of these have really transformed the way that society operates, and it's a tipping point in the sense that the old cultural majority, the interwar generation, the baby boom generation, has become the new minority in the population, but they're still the majority in the electorate. Why? Because they vote. So there's a representation gap. And I very much remember in the Brexit referendum, whenever I spoke at universities, I said, you know, if you've got your, if you really want to stay in the European Union, all the younger generation, all the university students, you have to vote, you have to get out there, you have to mobilize, you have to organize. <laughs> Unfortunately, they all stayed in bed. They all thought that their own values would be continuing, that the transformation that they knew about and their opportunities in Europe would continue they were kind of asleep at the wheel. But the new, the older group who felt threatened by Europe, they continued to argue on this, they get angry on this, they mobilized on this, they voted on this, and that was the difference in the Brexit referendum. So all of these have had major consequences. And I won't give you any more of our evidence because you can buy the book and find it all in there. And also, anyway, if I give evidence, it's not the best. Those are the core arguments. Um, there's obviously a lot more to it than simply education and, and generation, but those are the two key elements, and they're universal. That's why they're across Europe, across affluent countries. Do they threaten Australia? Well, I'll leave Tim to think about that. My own argument is that these are potential things that's very difficult to escape. And in particular, when you're in the politics of left-right, you can divide the cake in lots of different ways. You can think about taxes, you can think about spending, and you can divide up and redistribute. When you're thinking about cultural identity issues, you can't easily square the circle. You can't easily come to compromise. So the parties get polarized and society gets polarized. Thank you all very much, Jennifer. Thank you for, my, thank you for the presentation. Uh, thank you, Pippa. I think there are various salient points there. And, and what I quite like is how we're thinking 
about culture is not something that's fixed and finite, that no, it is dynamic and, and changes, continues to change over, over time. And in some ways there's a call, not necessarily to action, but a level of, of self-awareness about how we can't relax about this. This has to be something that we're consciously engaged with rather than assume that it will fix itself. And that's certainly one of the issues that we think about, I guess, in terms of thinking about the the culture, not just of our institution here, but about how the, the kinds of things you're describing, Pippa, are also uh, reminding us of how we're part of uh, a part of the world, which does affect us here and now. So let me introduce you to Dr. Tim Sudpomasan, who has been the Race Discrimination uh, Discrimination Commissioner for five years. He has been a political philosopher, in fact, here, and held p uh, posts at Australian universities and has been an opinion columnist with The Age and The Weekend Australian newspapers. He was born in France to Laotian parents and raised in southwestern Sydney. He studied government and international relations on a scholarship at the University of Sydney, earning a first-class honours degree, economics degree, in fact. He uh, completed a Master of Philosophy with distinction um, and a doctorate on patriotism, citizenship and culture at Oxford University. So it shows, both of them show, you know, the, the need for interdisciplinarity in scholarship in the 21st century. Um, I could go into detail about Tim's uh, political history with the Labor Party from the age of 15 according to our notes, and he's worked as, as a speechwriter for former New South Wales Premier Bob Carr and on the staff of the then opposition leader uh, Kevin Rudd during the 2007 election campaign. He was appointed to the Council of Multicultural Australia in 2011 and he, he is an adjunct professor at the School of Social Sciences and uh, Psychology at Western Sydney University and chairs the Leadership Council on cultural diversity. He's the author of four books, and I guess, uh, like Pippa, um, you can find out about both their, their books on online. But I would like you to now join me in welcoming Tim to the podium. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Tim. So we might take that one down. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Jennifer. And, and thank you, Pippa, for giving us such a compelling overview of what it looks like internationally. Uh, listening to that, I was wondering, uh, among the audience tonight, how many of you believe that we are seeing a populist cultural backlash in Australia at the moment? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, interesting. Um, well, I think Pip has done us a great service in identifying some of the features of what we refer to as populism. And, and the question she's posed, which I will seek to answer, namely, do we have this playing out in Australia? Uh, is one to which I'll answer yes to a degree. Uh, and the, the way it's been playing out in Australia is, is perhaps uh, slightly different to how it's been playing out in Europe. Uh, I wouldn't describe, for example, the, the, the popular sentiment we are seeing at the moment as being a form of authoritarian populism. In my mind, it might be better characterised as a form of nationalist populism. Uh, now that, that's not to say that the, the features of public debate that we are detecting at the moment do not uh, have some of those characteristics which Pippa has identified. Uh, populism is indeed not an ideology. It's not liberalism or socialism. Uh, it's rather a style of politics. It's an aesthetic. Um, that's not to belittle it in any way or to underestimate its potency, but it refers more to how you conduct your debates or the manner in which you speak 
about politics and the claims that you make for speaking on behalf of people. And, and people here is fundamental because the claim of the populist is that they speak definitively on behalf of the people against the establishment or the elite. Uh, the elite do not represent the people. Um, now you see this in Australia playing out I believe in the debates that we have around race, culture and immigration and free speech at the moment. Um, there is an identity politics that is being waged at the moment that draws upon certain ideas of who truly belongs to the Australian nation and who has a right to participate in public debate. Uh, those are some of the characteristics of what I would describe as populist discourse in Australia today. Uh, but let me give you some examples of how it's been playing out. How is this being manifested? Well, I think it's there in our parliament, for one. Uh, Pauline Hanson is back in parliament. Uh, and at the last federal election, it wasn't just her who was elected, there were a number of others who were elected as One Nation senators. But it goes beyond parliament, of course goes to how we are conducting our disagreements or our political debates. Think of whose voices are being legitimated or are being enabled at the moment. Uh, it is quite telling. Uh, you know, many of you following the news would be aware of some alt-right, so-called alt-right commentators and figures from overseas uh, who uh, are either currently visiting Australia or who have visited Australia in recent times. You think of Milo Yiannopoulos, commentator uh, closely aligned with Breitbart and the alt-right in the United States. He was received in our federal parliament by a number of parliamentarians. Uh, there was a lot of media commentary that was supportive of his visit as well. We are seeing this this week through Lauren Southern, another alt-right commentator who again has been making regular appearances on our media. Now you think of what we're seeing as regular features of public discussion today as well. Uh, once, perhaps twice a week on breakfast television, you are seeing Pauline Hanson and others being part of not only just the debate, but part of the agenda setting of our debate. And you think of the ideas that are being injected into our public discourse. Uh, think of calls for the banning of the burqa or the niqab, uh, calls for the banning of Muslim immigration. Uh, there was even a call uh, recently for the internment, mass internment of Muslims uh, by Jim Molan, now Senator Jim Molan. Uh, these are just some examples of the kind of discourse that you're seeing normalised now. I, I'll, I'll give you another example. You think of a commentator, Prue McSween, who said that if she saw the commentator, Yasmin abdel Megid on the street, she would, be in, she would be inclined to run her over. Uh, this is the kind of coarseness of public debate that you are seeing in our politics, which arguably we have uh, not seen before. I mean, there's always been rough and tumble, of course, and conflict in our public debates. And I think in our Australian political culture, we, we pride ourselves 
on speaking plainly and not pulling out punches and calling a spade a spade. Uh, but there's always been some civility around how we do that. Uh, but this is coming under challenge and coming under challenge because of this nationalist populist style of politics, I would argue, that is gaining some currency. And it's gaining currency because of, of the, the social changes that are happening. Uh, there are some in our society who do feel anger and resentment. They feel left behind by social change, whether that's economic or cultural. Uh, we can get into what exactly this involves a bit later, but the temper of this, uh, I think, is one of anger and resentment and a sense that uh, some have that they may have once been in a certain position in society but that they are now losing their position and they don't have a voice. Not only that they don't have a voice but they're being stifled and suffocated. Uh, you think of the phrases that flow out in our public debate at the moment. This idea for example that political correctness has gone mad or that we cannot say what we think anymore, or that minorities are getting special treatment and privileges that old Australians or traditional Australians are not enjoying. And listen to that. You can hear the resentment. You can hear the anger. Now, I think of that movie from the 1970s for those who are film buffs, Network. Who knows Network? There's, it's about this news anchor who goes mad but his catch cry is I'm as mad as hell and I don't give a damn anymore or something to that effect I'm not gonna take it anymore thank you thank you uh, that is the catch cry of nationalist populism today as well um, now Australia is different as I mentioned from some of the other liberal democracies that are grappling uh, with populist challenges and it's different in my view because Australia has compulsory voting and, and that is one possible safety valve that we have here. Uh, if we didn't have compulsory voting arguably you might have a situation where the influence of nationalist populism may be amplified but because we have compulsory voting there is a bit of a gravitational pulled towards the center. Um, whereas in other countries you've got to work hard to get out the vote, to mobilize your supporters, to make sure for example uh, that people aren't at home on, on voting day. Uh, here we have a remarkably high turnout with our vote. Uh, everyone is expected to vote and required to do so by law. You don't have that structure which enables populism to mobilize the fringe and have an outsized influence on results. We have too an economy that has been experiencing growth for well over 25 years now. This does make us distinctive from many other countries. Um, but it also points to a need for us to be vigilant and not to be complacent. If we are seeing the rise of nationalist populism even when we are in the third decade of continuous economic growth 
when unemployment is at 5%, when house prices are going up, when wealth is increasing overall, imagine what we would be facing if we were to experience an economic downturn. Imagine if people were losing their jobs in greater number. Imagine if there were economic loss entering the picture. Um, now we are seeing at the moment some signs which are troubling. Uh, we, are, we are seeing a return to race politics. Uh, there are groups that are being increasingly singled out in public debates. Just this week, for example, we've seen renewed debate about African gangs, so-called African gangs in Melbourne. Uh, to be singling out groups and to be naming groups as prone to criminality is nothing if not an illustration of race politics. Uh, it is very dangerous, in my view, to have political debate which can create division in that way. History tells us that that is a recipe for racial disharmony and for division. Uh, we see it playing out as well through what I've referred to as the normalization of coarseness and conflict. Uh, what we would have regarded as the fundamental rules of liberal democracy, an assumption of non-discrimination, an assumption of equality, regardless of race or religion, is something that we perhaps cannot take for granted anymore. Having said all this, I do believe we're in a relatively strong position to deal with any populist challenge. Uh, if you were to look at those countries that Pippa uh, listed in her slides, and if you were to look at what the po popular sentiment in Europe or in the United States is on questions of immigration or multiculturalism, you would see a very clear picture, one in which a clear majority do not feel comfortable about cultural diversity, multiculturalism or mass immigration. But over a sustained period of time, Australian society has demonstrated emphatically that it is relaxed and comfortable about our multicultural character and about non-discrimination. So the Scanlon Foundation conducts an annual survey of social attitudes, uh, but it regularly finds that between 83 to 86 percent of Australians in this nationally representative sample say that they believe multiculturalism is good for the country. 83 to 86 percent. Now, I can't think of many social questions that would garner a response above 80%. When we had the same-sex marriage poster vote, for example, having the six in front was regarded as definitive. We've got an eight in front of popular support for multiculturalism. Support for non-discrimination in immigration is at similar levels. About 80% of Australians believe that our immigration program should not discriminate on the basis of race and religion. And we know too, a similar proportion of people believe that it should remain unlawful to racially vilify others in our society. So we've had extensive debate, as many of you would know, about the Racial Discrimination Act and free speech. 
but we know that about 78 percent of people believe it should remain unlawful to offend insult or humiliate someone because of their race in public now this for me is a is evidence of where the mainstream of Australian society lies and here perhaps is our greatest challenge at the moment as a democracy to distinguish between the noise and the rancor and the quiet mainstream or the silent majority now the silent majority is of course an idea that's often mobilized by populists against elites or the establishment but I would posit to you that the silent majority in Australia accept multiculturalism accept equality and take pride in our achievement as a nation of immigration it's just that it's not reflected all of the time in our public debates and why is it not reflected does it have anything to do perhaps with who is in the parliament or who works in our media might it have something to do with the fact that media is being fragmented at the moment that they're being pushed to work harder and harder to grab the attention of audiences could this be a reflection of the monetization of racial hatred by media outlets could it reflect the politicization of race by those who desire partisan gain uh, and in here I want to conclude by reflecting on how I believe our society must respond to these challenges uh, it is absolutely vital that our society stands up for its values if our society believes in equality and fairness and non-discrimination then now is the time for our society to defend those values and that defense must begin with our political leaders if they do not defend these values it will be much more difficult to hold the line against the forces of nationalist and extremist populism but we can't delegate this responsibility to leaders alone citizens have a responsibility too and citizens can exercise their freedom of speech as well to respond to bigotry and to division and responding to these challenges will require courage it will require resilience uh, for too long we have perhaps assumed that the majority and the mainstream in our society do not have to work to secure our values uh, no greater illustration of this than the fact that not even an absolute majority of young Australians these days believe that democracy is the most preferable system of government this is the finding of the Lowy Institute where a, a clear substantial section of Australians aged between 18 and 29 uh, entertain the idea of a benign dictatorship believe that it might be all right to suspend democracy we've heard about the structural changes and the historical shifts in public attitudes and sentiments but findings like that illustrate I believe 
fundamental challenge to the assumptions we might have about our society, change, and our values as a liberal democracy. Sobering, I think. <laughs> Um, what we're going to do now is actually hear from, uh, we're going to have a discussion amongst uh, ourselves. We will leave the microphones on so that you can hear what we're saying. Uh, but what we'll, uh, the idea is that I've actually, I've asked the two speakers to, to ask each other a question or two and to just get a bit of a discussion. I mean, what interests me here are, are the sort of issues around, you know, the, the theoretical frameworks we look, we, we use to think about um, the sort of research that you're doing but then also the reality that one faces in the sort of work that you're doing, Tim, in terms of working with communities, working with um, working with governments, working with media that are sometimes hostile towards um, the sorts of things that, that you've been talking about. So would you please join me up here and we will um, switch our mics on and we will hear what questions uh, the political scientists have for each other. <laughs> So who's okay. going to begin, Pippa? Yeah, who's first? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tim, the argument you made was that we need to basically stick with our liberal values, stick with progressive policies, stick with that. Is there an argument, however, that that actually is a suppression of certain groups and certain minority views who do not share perhaps the liberal consensus which is in this room? And that therefore some... Is it that we're in some ways with our own values saying those are the ones which should predominate and therefore not really legitimizing those who would challenge them in a serious way. Mm. Um, yeah, you know. well, well uh, m my view is we've got to be firm and forthright in our values. Um, but that's not to say that you should be preventing others from having their say. Um, but you can't have uh, freedom of speech only for, uh, for some and not for others. Mm. And, and, and mm. quite often people mistake the exercise of freedom of speech as an act of suppression. So for, I'll, I'll give you a, a very direct example in my work. Uh, quite often I hear the refrain that if I were to say, well, I, I, I don't agree with that and I think it rehearses racial stereotypes and involves a form of racism. The, the refrain there can be, oh, you're trying to shut this debate down by calling me a racist. Um, now, who's shutting whom down? Because I would have thought that that's me exercising my freedom of speech, uh, but yet it's being characterised by some as an attempt to shut down the debate. No one's shutting down the debate. I'm happy to have the debate, mm. but if you don't want to be called a racist, start by not doing something involving racism. Um, that the mm. uh, <laughs> now I'm crystallising that, but I, 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 I do believe you touch on something that is crucial, which is that mm. we've got to be prepared to listen or to be challenged by views, and we've got to give people a fair hearing. Um, so I, I'm for robust mm. disagreement, uh, but we, we do it from the common ground of being um, citizens or being members of a society. Um, but even that premise is being increasingly challenged, mm -hmm. and the challenge comes from a number of directions, but quite often you will hear the charge made that, well, you are being treasonous or traitorous here. You're betraying our country. 
Um, you know, in calling out racism, you are being ungrateful for the opportunities this country has given you. You don't have a right to argue this point because your ancestors didn't fight in wars defending this country. These are the sorts of sentiment one hears. Well, uh, I put it a different way. Um, quite often when we're having debates about racism, the impulse that's animating people calling these things out is precisely patriotism or a commitment to one's country because there's a desire to improve one's country. So if we're talking about how debates can be shut down or suppressed, um, I think they can be shut down in more ways than one. And quite often those who, um, who, who profess free speech or uh, want more freedom are very happy to shut down other people's uh, free speech and, and exercise of freedom as well. Um, but I think there, there is an element of uh, judgment and citizenship involved here, that we need good citizens who can be firm in expressing their values, be prepared to have disagreements, but also be willing to give people a hearing. And uh, do we always manage to do that? I would say we, all, we, we don't always That's manage right, to yeah. do that, but we've got to work at it. Um, but y you've mm. probably seen some of this play out, Pippa, in the United States and, and, and other places. Are, are we experiencing a new form of polarization which precludes mm. us even having that common ground? Absolutely. And I mean, it's on both sides now. That's the trouble. Mm. So for one, basically, on some issues, if you talk about things like how much money should you put into healthcare, or what should we do about schools, or what should we do about the bread and butter issues of jobs, we can all divide the cake in lots of different ways and argue in, in traditional ways on the left and the right, socialists, conservatives, etc., liberals and others. But when it comes to these identity issues, they're so much affective about our feelings about ourselves, not just about what's out there, but about how we see ourselves. And that when those who feel that their identities are under threat, what they stand for is under threat, they become intolerant, and it's emotion and anger, as you said yourself, which is driving. It's not about reason. It's not about the number of immigrants. It's not, for example, if you take the immigration issue about the wall, the numbers of immigrants who've been coming across the wall, both legal and those who are claiming asylum, has been going down. It's been record low. And yet, of course, by stoking up those fears, that really uh, affects people's emotions. And those emotions are what drives the debate. And then the other side, those who are liberal and progressive, are equally intolerant. And they're happy to basically be polarized themselves. They're very, their anger is mobilizing them, which is good. They are engaged in massive numbers. More people have been protesting under the Trump administration than we've recorded ever before. Something like 9% of the population has turned out for one rally or another, whether it's the Women's March, whether it's the young kids against guns or others. So there's intolerance on both sides, which is being fed. And it's very difficult, and it's being fed by Congress as well because both parties are totally at odds. Nobody trusts anybody in America anymore. And I don't know how you get over that by saying, well, we should be reasonable, which of course we should. We should listen to the other side, of course we should. And in this group, we'd all nod to that. But how do you do that when it's your identity which is under threat um, and people aren't willing to listen, they aren't willing to open their ideas to these other perspectives because they don't even regard them as factually true or emotionally true or anything that they should mm. recognize. So this does, sorry, Tim, so this doesn't, does this feature in your research at all, Pippa, that, that sort of the affective um, aspect and how that affects people's capacity to, to argue well? Yes, absolutely. And 
the whole idea now, in particular in social psychology, of motivated reasoning, that we hope that we're all open to the facts and we're scientists mm. in a way, and that therefore, if, for example, we find that certain percentages of immigrants have gone down, we're less concerned about those issues. But what we do is we filter the facts according to our partisanship in particular, and partisanship in America has become the form of identity. Uh, when you ask people, for example, in the past, who would you marry or not marry? You know, who would you want your kid to marry? Um, racial tolerance, you, you know, was always part of the issue, right? But now, if you're a Republican, uh, everybody says, no, if I'm a Democrat, and vice versa. So it affects people's identity. It's how they see each other. Um, and therefore, they filter the news, they filter the information according to that. You've all been watching what's been happening about Russia. Are they meddling or not? Well, of course, all the evidence from all the intelligence agencies says, yes, there's a broad consensus. If you're a Republican, you just say, ah, I don't believe any of that. The intelligence agencies are making it up. Nobody believes them. And therefore, I believe my leader. I believe Trump. So affect your mm. feeling about your identity, translated into politics in your mm. party, then filters everything else that you believe. But and how do you get to this kind of gr broad tolerance of the other view? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to put to you to your question, actually, because um, I, I know some would, would say that the, 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 fund the fundamental requirement of a democracy is some element of social trust. Yes, and, and political trust. Correct. Yeah. And, and th there'd be a point of view which would say that in, in decades gone by, people mixed with each other, they would socialise with their neighbours, and that's how trust would be built, and, and that's what allowed for politics to um, be conducted with some element of common ground. But we've lost that trust. Um, mm. we're, we're, we're not... Um, we, we, you know, to put it in very colloquial terms, uh, people are more likely now to be stuck in their living rooms uh, on a Friday or Saturday night watching Netflix as opposed to uh, being out and, 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 and mixing with their friends. Um, is, is there an element of, of, of that in this, you think? Or, um, or, or is that painting an idealised picture of uh, a golden age of, 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 of democracy? Right. Of the white picket fence. This is Bob Putnam, 1993. And I don't think it's what's going on today. If you look, for example, at where there's the greatest hostility to immigration, Hispanics, Muslims, other groups, it's the white communities which are rural, which have very great deal of social trust within themselves. Everybody trusts everybody who goes to church, everybody trusts everybody, because they all look the same. Uh, and it's not the areas of high immigration, uh, which are really the problems in terms of racial attitudes or anti-immigrant attitudes and so on. So I don't think it's social trust, it's political trust is part of it and partly how the leadership has lost trust with each other. Congressional members in one party just do not trust anything the other party is doing, and vice versa. So it's a political problem more than a social problem, um, for the reasons mm. we've, we've thought. Before. You don't think that the social problem is also people abdicating their responsibility um, and, and not sort of taking on um, or they're not being active citizens, so to speak. So that, that the whole kind of handing over the, the um, debate to the leader uh, well, is, is kind yeah. of lazy citizenship in, in a way. Uh, and like people are very polarised and they're yeah. active on the issues they care about. Mm. So the anti-abortionists are out there demonstrating just as those who are in favour of reproductive rights are there. Just as the, the gun lobby is incredibly mobilised, if you think about the amount of money it raises, millions of members of that group, along with those who are now anti-guns, so it's full of passionate intensity, to use the T.S. Eliot phrase. Yeah. That's as much mm. of a problem as people sitting home and not getting engaged at all. Mm. Uh, but they're involved in particular issues. They're not involved in the consensus building. They're not involved in the community, absolutely. And they're not involved in the sort of issues 
like trade unions or like other groups who could bring people together yes. uh, across a wide range of different issues and achieve a consensus. And, and I've got to say, I've grown increasingly sceptical of, uh, of the Putnam uh, bowling alone or social trust view as mm. well. Um, the more I think about these things, the more I think what we're just seeing is perhaps a, a reflection of power, hierarchy and adjustment. And if you put it into a truly global picture, I mean, the, the reality is um, Western democracies aren't uh, in the same position in the hierarchy as they might use, used to have been. And, and, and people are just getting used to this new reality that yeah. they, they can't take for granted that they're always going to be number one or that parts okay. of the world are, uh, are the third world, poor countries should be put in their place and, and, and part of what we're seeing perhaps is just a very visceral mm -hmm. response from those who feel powerless who are grappling with the fact that they may not wield the power that they grew up thinking they would and moreover their countries may not be wielding the power that they grew up thinking uh, that that it would as well mm -hmm. absolutely the end of the american century as we can say mm. I wonder if it's a good time then to open uh, questions to the floor in the next uh, next little while. I'm, I'm sure that quite a few of you have got questions uh, that you want to ask. I mean, I was sort of thinking about um, trying to take some kind of positive sort of take on yeah, this. Yeah. Is what uh, what about consensus building? Is that what we need to be doing? Is thinking about new forms of consensus building in whether it's in communities or in, in sort of thinking about, uh, I mean, not necessarily replacing old institutions that used to do that, but is that is that partly what we're... We yeah, it's, it's really hard work though, right? And and, yeah. and, and and we're talking about excruciating labour here and, and, and labour that isn't always going to force evenly onto everyone in society. Uh, uh, if we're thinking of, you know, the, the need to build consensus or killing ugliness with kindness. Who's going to do the killing of ugliness with kindness? Who are we expecting to make accommodations? Um, and the social psychology on, on things like how you combat racism um, is, is quite depressing reading in that um, it tells us that if you're going to change someone's mind on race, if they have prejudiced views, uh, the best or most effective way of doing that is to not deal with it directly, um, but actually going in a roundabout way and finding mm. a way to frame it in positive terms or avoiding direct conflict if you can. Um, the, the nudge. Now, now, that's, now I think of it, there's, there's one really powerful example that I always think of and it um, refer, involves the experience of an African-American musician called Daryl Davis um, who in 1980s in Maryland uh, was uh, approached by a man in an audience that he was playing to who uh, confided in him that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, um, but he loved the way that Daryl played music and he wanted to buy him a drink. Um, now, over the course of many years, Daryl and this Klansman became friends, and Daryl would go to his house, would then become friends, became friends with many other Klansmen, um, and uh, over the course of many years, um, he began uh, finding that the Klansmen would change their minds and would leave the Klan. So today, Daryl Davis has in his wardrobe a collection of Ku Klux Klan robes. Um, but think of how many decades Daryl Davis would have had to spend 
going to Ku Klux Klan meetings and rallies, talking to Ku Klux Klan members. I mean, this is the kind of labor that we're talking about. And I think if we're talking about how we build consensus, we can often end up uh, ignoring the fact that the division of labor is not an equal division of labor. And the burden, yeah, the burden, the burden is borne yeah. by some more yeah. than others. Yeah. And in a way, it becomes more positive. I'd go much more for structural reforms. In other words, yeah. incentives, right? To get people to work together. Think about things like reforming the role of money in politics and the way in which so much money speaks in a politics, and that's very much distorting. Think about the role of gerrymandering and the way yeah. in which basically you're appealing only to your own party and not to the opposition. Think about the role of primaries in America and the way in which you're appealing to the passionate Republican or Democrat, but not to the mainstream majority, or the silent majority as we called them. So structural reforms and getting rid of some incumbency, there's lots of things could be yeah. done if we can get enough momentum, mm. but that will require, of course, um, a change in 2018 in the midterm elections, and then ideally in 2020 as well. Yeah. Because until you do that, you can't get anything through Congress. We're going to take a question up here. <laughs> on so um, it's a question for Pippa, but Tim, you might have something to say about it or some insights. So what I'm curious about is, um, Pippa, you mentioned that tipping point and you had the graph of the um, increase in percentage of, I think it was sort of authoritarian populism over the past 15 or so years. I'm wondering how you see um, people like Obama, uh, Trudeau, Macron, who have been elected, how they fit into this as we kind of move forward. That's right. I mean, that's a very good question. So, in particular, Macron, I do think, is a centrist populist. He's somebody who certainly appeals to that, who's an outsider. He's not part of the old party socialists, nor the Republicans. So he could say he's a fresh face in politics, but he also stood for Europe and for a variety of centrist solutions, uh, and the younger generation as well. Trudeau, um, a wonderful example of a younger liberal politician who's been very, very successful, but it's in Canada, of course, Canada being somewhat exceptional and a little bit like Australia. Um, um, if we could all be Canada, then the world, world, you know, would be solved. This is still great. But they are, in some ways, the exceptions. Um, and we shouldn't be negative again about all populists by any means. As I said, there are progressive forms of populism. And where, in particular, the institutions are not responsive, where they haven't given people a choice, where they haven't articulated the, the views of those groups who are opposed to these social changes, there should be populists. And there, and there should, should be a real, real debate, debate about, about these issues. Mm. And to some extent, it's true that the liberals, <coughs> which I count ourselves probably part of that group, have to some extent suppressed some of these discussions. For example, on race, it's not been seen as something which mainstream politicians should necessarily address from a broad representative view of every single perspective. So some of the things have been helping to open up debates, as in debates about European membership as well. But the overall consequences, unfortunately, have been negative by allowing all sorts of forms of um, uh, of critical of minorities and human rights to come forward and feel themselves empowered as well. But not every politician is marching to the same drum, unfortunately. And again, Obama was a wonderful exception, who really stood up for all of the good liberal values, but who provoked a backlash again amongst the white population that felt that this was something that was a step too far and that our policies have gone a step too far. Thank you. We have a question down here and then one just up there. Hi. I see a lot of discrimination existing now in Sydney, here and now, just around us, between rich and poor, the homeless and whatever. Uh, I've been exploring the sort of soup kitchen scene in Sydney, and I think 
the ever-increasing number of poor and homeless, we should work at um, integrating them a bit more. So talk to me if you want to know more. Thank you. And uh, your comments, please. to those mixes as well. Yeah. So those are the critical divisions in society and also for Brexit. If you look at who voted for Brexit, who stayed in, etc. It's those issues. Mm, thank, thank you. you. Question in the middle? Yes, ma'am. So I come from a part of the States, which is clearly a rural area. Um, I know y'all. So, <laughs> so my question really is, I left the States for a reason. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to touch that complexity, the educational needs at a rural perspective. But is there anything other than education that you see that might lead those individuals to a tipping point? So when I looked at the research on who was voted for Trump and Clinton, obviously the rural urban divide is one of the biggest ones, but you have to look at what was going on in those rural populations. So I looked at things like unemployment, because again, there's the classic argument that it's the poor areas which have lost manufacturing jobs, and that's partially true, but the unemployment rate wasn't that greater in the rural areas than the inner cities. I looked at other factors that might explain it. Opioid crisis, you can actually identify where people were voting for Trump and those sorts of social problems. But the heart of it seemed to be, above all again, that the rural areas were left with the older populations. They were populations who were less educated, and of a certain generation, their kids had left, they'd gone to school in a big college city, in Chicago, in New York, in San Francisco, and they'd settled there, they got opportunities, and those kids were living in a multicultural society and lots of diversity and so on. So the groups behind were the ones who'd lost the next generation, if you like. They did have social problems, but they were the older generation who were left behind, and that, for me, was as important as their class or their income or anything else, and that was the heart, that is the heart still of the incredible base that Trump has, uh, amongst those particular communities. 
uh, much more than anything that's economic in, in what was going on. And you're not going to change that overnight, even though Trump says he's going to bring back the whole country. I mean, it's a myth. This is a 19th century technology for a 21st century uh, area. He's going to bring back iron and steel by putting on tariffs. It's a myth. It's never going to happen. You can't roll back. It's rather like you know bringing back records rather than uh, downloading and so on. But they are popular again, Pippa. Yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, then we'll talk about that later. There was another question over here. Oh, here and okay, sorry. Hi, this is a question for both Tim and Pippa. Um, over the last few years in Australian politics, I've sort of noticed as an Australian that we don't like people in power. And so I, that tends to make me think that Australians have a natural tendency towards both populism but against authoritarianism. To what extent do you think that is true and how do you accommodate that in your conceptual framework, Pippa? So in earlier work, what I used to talk about was critical citizens. And these are people who are critical of those who are in power, and they are rightly so in many ways, but they also are engaged in a variety of other ways as well. They're not critical just for the sake of it. They're critical because often things don't work. Government doesn't always work, or policies can be corrupt, or you can get government scandals, etc. So the idea of a liberal, going back to philosophy, the idea of a liberal tradition is one which is that you shouldn't just be apathetic. You shouldn't just trust those who are in power. You should be those who are aware and therefore holding them to account for any problems which they might have. Now the trouble is when that turns into cynicism, where you don't trust anybody and you can't trust either party or any politician and you just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So either, either if you're too trusting, and I'd argue there's a whole group of people who are too trusting, for example, of Donald Trump right now, they believe he tells the truth when he clearly does not by any shape or form, nor should you be too cynical where you don't trust anything. It's kind of a point in between the two that you're trying to aim at. So criticism per se isn't a bad thing, and you're trying to get that optimal balance, uh, which is a very difficult one to get. That's how I conceive of it. Um, I, I would say there's a paradox in the Australian national character, if you believe there is a national character. Uh, on, on the one hand, Australians believe that Jack is as good as his master, if not better. Um, but on the other hand, Australians can be very conformist. No matter how much we might pr protest, um, we, we are pretty good at taking instructions from uh, authority and, and adhering uh, to strictures that are issued by authority. Uh, if there is a, a dislike of politicians and those in positions of power, uh, it may well reflect the instability we've had around political leadership for the past 10 years or so. Uh, we've just had so many changes in prime ministership that that, that is not is probably more typical of uh, you know the, the parliament in its first 20 years as opposed to um, what parliament looks like in the second half of the 20th century uh, and, and 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 I detect a very clear frustration and disillusionment with politics uh, and people just want government to do things and to get the job done rather than shifting and, and, and changing and being caught up in perpetual uh, leadership changes. So uh, I, I feel like uh, that, that's one possible explanation for, 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 for what you've identified. Mm. I think up here and then down here. 
having a stab at another one. Um, there's an old Chinese saying that the, the soil and water of a place creates the people of that place. Really old Chinese saying. That's the rough translation. And getting, like, in a way, going back to the beginning of the whole proceedings tonight, the Gadigal people uh, and all the different cultures, indigenous cultures of Australia, they seemingly ritualised warfare. From, what, from my reading, they, war became a ritual as compared to people just slaughtering each other. In a way, that comes from the land. Um, this place having no topsoil or water as compared to other places. Um, therefore, my question, um, could you put a geographical frame in, into understanding cultures, political cultures, for instance? And it's in, in the sense that North, East and West and Northern Hemisphere constructs, we come from the South. this and uh, I suppose uh, given my interest in, in race and uh, the historical emergence of ideas about race, I, um, I, have, I have a bit of caution in thinking about how geography uh, might be regarded as dictating the characters of, of people. Um, you know, you, you think, for example, of tropes about how in the tropics, you know, going back to 19th century ideas about race and different peoples, this idea that when the tropics, um, the natives um, have a certain approach to, to, to work and sex, whereas of course in um, Nordic climes you have sturdier characters who uh, work hard and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and have a certain genius for doing things. So I'm, I'm, I'm naturally a bit sceptical about, um, about uh, aligning geography and and characteristics of, of people too closely, um, but um, I profess I'm, I'm, I'm not a geographer and it was a very poor one at high school, so um, <laughs> I, I can't answer your question in any, in, in any good way, I'm afraid. Okay, we have another two questions. So we have one here and yeah, then and one at the back. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, so I'm coming from a Canadian perspective and in the last federal election it was kind of incredible because when the whole world seemed to be going one way, we voted very much decisively for Justin Trudeau who was completely in the opposite direction. And I was just wondering what kind of protective factors you think may have prevented um, our country from following the United States, for example? I mean, it's a really good question because you've got two countries on the same border with totally different divergence in where they're going. Uh, I think there are a couple of things. One is that uh, in, in particular the immigration policy of both countries has been very different. And that therefore the way in which they've monitored that and the way in which they've allowed minorities to come in, one is based much more on merit, one is much more based on family. And those distinctions therefore have given a different kind of base to who the immigration populations are. Canada is incredibly diverse, it is very multicultural, but it is much more based on the economically um, affluent and middle class but in America, in the United States, where it's more based on family ties, which often means more groups who are poorer from Guatemala and who are refugees from Nicaragua and a variety of other Latin American countries. So immigration itself is a very different context in both countries. And then also, I think, just the tradition and the way in which Canada has always been so much at the forefront. It's, it is the Sweden of, of North America in terms of respect for human rights, respect for gender equality, respect for all the good things that one might hope for for any liberal kind of view. And America has had, always had this long tradition of populism. It's nothing brand new. I mean, we've had populists in the 1920s. We've had Huey Long. We've had racist movements under Wallace. 
It's been a long tradition. And indeed, many people say that when we have rediscovered race or racism now, uh, it's naive, it's always there, it's just it wasn't so visible, and it wasn't so open, overt, as it has been uh, justified under Trump. So, two cultures. Uh, Seymour Lipset once talked about why they, the two diverged in so many different ways, and it's a long, complex story, um, but I think these are some of the factors that might divide the two. Are you happy with that answer? <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Um, I wanted, please, to ask you how you would measure authorita authoritarianism. Yes, because, and also it seems that France is a very good example, because I'm very surprised to hear that Macron is put on the same level as Trudeau and Obama tonight. So, uh, as there has been, have been very obvious signs of authoritarianism on his side in, in the last weeks. It's a long story to give you my methods, as it were. But what we do is we, are, we do two things. One is we classify parties according to where they stand. So experts in each country throughout Europe and elsewhere are asked on 10-point scales, where does this party stand on a variety of things? For example, are they anti-establishment or are they pro-elite? Are they, what's their policies on immigration? What's their policies on multiculturalism? And that's done by experts in a CHES study uh, in Chapel Hill. And then we also ask the public. We have a survey across Europe, European Social Survey, and we ask them a variety of questions. And in particular, to get at authoritarianism, uh, for any social psychologist in the room, we use something called the Schwartz scale. And it doesn't ask about immigration. It doesn't ask about policies. What it asks about what's important for you. For example, is it important to live in a society which is secure and which is safe? Or is it important to have a life which is adventurous and has risks? Is it important to obey the law? Is it important to be creative and adventurous? So they give a variety of different personal values. And then what I find, quite simply, is those personal values very clearly predict the rise and who supports authoritarian parties. Uh, whereas if you're a libertarian, if, if you believe in liberalism, you're much more likely to support the socially liberal and progressive parties in, in Europe as well. It's one of the strongest predictors. And even some basic things. We used to explore authoritarianism as a, as a psychological personality trait. Um, and here the idea was, what are your child-rearing values? And it sounds a bit dated, but things like, do you think for your kids it's important to have obedience? and to learn manners, or is it important for them to be, uh, again, kind of creative or independent and free? And those basic childhood values, when you ask people in the survey, are great predictors of who supported Trump, who supported Clinton, who supported uh, Le Pen, who supported mm. um, mainstream parties, and so on. So it's not that we're asking them about policies, which could be endogenous, because you like a party, so you adopt their policies. It's your basic social values lead you towards security, obedience, and support for a strong leader versus support for other, fo other forms of, of, of policies. Uh, I can give you more if you're interested. It's all, by the way, available on my website. You can download oh, I thought she was about to talk about the book again. <laughs> but that's that okay. a short explanation. Thank you. I think we just have one more question up the back, and then I think we'll have to wrap up. Um, yeah, there seems to be a real view, especially in the younger generation, that Australian populism should predominantly represent the working class. But the reality seems to be that the working class are the people whose opinions aren't actively being legitimised um, in politics. So then populism almost becomes increasingly polarised but increasingly affluent and kind of leaves behind the people it was like originally intended for. So is there any way to actually counter that? Uh, I think it's really interesting to, to think about uh, what working class means. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you look at the uh, Australian economy today, um, uh, close to 80%, I think, of people work in service industries. Um, we have a very high percentage of, 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 of education, what we would his- traditionally associate as um, working class, you know, working in manufacturing, um, really uh, manual work doesn't necessarily hold up in the world that we we have today. Um, but having said all that, I, I think, the and th- those who are political scientists might need to correct me here, I, th- I think a substantial proportion of the Australian community based on the Australian uh, election um, studies still identify themselves as working class. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you, you you just get different references to uh, to class in in Australia in our political debates now. No one really refers directly to uh, a working class. I mean, Kevin Rudd famously would refer to working families. Um, I think you hear references to um, battlers um, or those doing it tough. Bogans. Um, ordinary Australians. Ordinary Australians. Um, so so I think yeah. they're, they're all signals or or nods towards something that that, that is uh, about class. Um, but, I, but I do think you, you, you are seeing elements of, um, uh, I mean, I've referred to nationalist populism. I think there are, uh, there's, there's another form of populism which can be classed as um, economic populism mm-hmm. for a want of a better phrase. But uh, you, 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 we've, we've got a Royal Commission going on um, about the, the banks and the f- financial sector at the moment. I think there's a lot of uh, genuine revulsion at what many banks have been doing and what they've been getting away with. Uh, And um, I suspect that there's a rich vein of political appeal um, in in targeting uh, banks. Um, And, you know, some of that is warranted based on what we've seen so far. Um, but the the idea that uh, people aren't getting a fair go or getting a fair share and aren't benefiting from our economic growth, that the economy isn't inclusive enough, that uh, people are, uh, are, are being stretched to work in a gig economy and not having security or the protections that would associate with, with having stable employment, um, I think these are all things that are going to uh, really come to the fore in in our public debate in the the near and immediate future. And maybe I can just add that I think the real challenge is this. If you think about the parties on the right, the conservative parties, the liberal parties who are pro-market, they can adapt some of the language of populism and adapt some of their issues, but kind of make it more moderate in the broadest sense and have a consistent set of policies. The problem is the parties on the left, the centre-left, On the one hand, they need to appeal to the working class base. They need to appeal to those who are still in factory work, who are less well off, and that's part of what they stand for economically. On the other hand, in terms of their cultural values, in terms of their other sorts of identities, they can't suddenly change and become uh, less in favor of women or less in favor of social diversity or somehow more racist towards minorities. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's why the social democratic parties of the world have really been hemorrhaging votes. They're Mm. down to the lowest share of the votes I calculate now than since 1900 to 1910, if you take every single decade. And it's true of every country. So if they try to appeal to the working class on economic issues, they can't appeal to them on cultural issues. 
and therefore they, they get totally divided themselves internally as to how they should respond. And you can see that in America. What do the Democrats do? Do they all become Bernie Sanders um, leftists or do they try to somehow create a new mix? Uh, they don't know how to do it. So it's a, it's a real challenge. Thank you. And uh, yes, a good note to end on. I want to um, please join me in, in thanking our, our speakers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.